This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books, with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. This is another special episode of Danger Close because we are recapping the books in the series in the lead up to publication of Only the Dead. This is the second novel, True Believer. I am going over this with my friend and publicist extraordinaire, David Brown from Simon & Schuster. And we have Jesse Carey in the background who's gonna give us a little uh, synopsis of the novel at some point here. Kicking this thing off, David, thank you so much for being here again, and uh, thank you for your friendship, and thank you for everything that you do every single day to introduce new readers to the James Reese series. It is sincerely appreciated. And it is sincerely a labor of love. This is, uh, it's always so exciting when uh, a new Jack Carr book comes out, and to be able to talk about the uh books that have come out already and to, to recap them and to get people ready for the next one. And these uh, recaps that we're doing will live on forever. So at any point, if someone wants to get into the series and, and say book 12 is coming out and maybe they're not, they, they want to read book 12 now and they'll get to the other ones later, but they want to know what's led up to this book. Tw- listen to this podcast and listen to the series. There right? we go. There we go. We will, uh, we'll be here and, uh, we'll be rocking and rolling, uh, online with this, uh, with this recap, but, uh, but true believer. Um, so the first one I submitted to the department of defense so they could do their, uh, it's called the, it's called the, the Department of Defense Office of Pre-Publication and Security Review. That's what it's called. And uh, so I was pretty close to my time in the military. I started writing it during my last year and a half in the military. Uh, and it is fiction, but uh, I wanted to make sure that just cover my bases. So I submitted it to this office and uh, they got back to me uh, online. It says they get back to you in, gosh, what was it? 30 days? Uh, I have to go back in the memory banks a little bit here, like 30 days. Uh, they got back to me in 45. That's what it was. So they advertised 30. You have to, you submit to them. They're back to you in 30 days with redactions. Well, this was 45. And I thought, oh my gosh, for this, uh, this gigantic entity called the United States government that, uh, that has, uh, the department of defense and then has this office in here that is looking at things that former service members with clearances, right. Um, 45 days is pretty good. I thought that was pretty good. They took out nine either words or sentences. So not that too many things, just a few things. And they were all pretty ridiculous and you can figure out exactly what they are just by context. But, uh, but they did take a few things out and I thought, oh, you know, okay, fine. Uh, so I submitted the second book too. Uh, still pretty close to the time that I was in the military. So wanted to submit, do my, do, do the right thing. And, uh, so I did that and, uh, one month passed, uh, that 45 days passed, two months passed, three, four, five, six months and closing in on seven months is when they get back. So during this time frame, we pushed the publication date. So the publication date was supposed to be, let's say March or April of 2019. And by January, late January, we still didn't have word back from this Department of Defense office um, about these redactions. So uh, we just kept going, pushing and pushing, and then we had to move the publication date. So we moved it from either March or April to late July, one of the last days in July, like July 28th, 29th, somewhere in there. I remember it very clearly because it impacted a lot of what I was doing as a publicist and what we were doing as a publishing house. We didn't have a book to 
to print. So yeah. there was a lot of moving parts going into that. And I don't want to say panic, but a lot of chaos, uh, managed chaos. We knew what we had to do. We just didn't know when we were going to get it. We didn't know when to move it. Uh, events were booked. I had to move. Interviews were booked. We had to, and the fans, the people that loved, we, we were afraid that we were losing momentum. Yeah. The statement list was taking off. People were loving it. They were dying for the next book. And here we are. We have to tell them that it's delayed. But what we decided to do was tell them the truth. Yeah. Say that there's, there's something in there the government doesn't want you to see. So they're taking their sweet time to try to fix it for you. Yep. Yep. And they came when it did finally come back. I think maybe it came back in, let's say, uh, May, whenever it was. Um, it uh, had 54 redactions. So a lot more than the first novel for some reason. Uh, and it had uh, locations taken out, taken out. It had, once again, all ridiculous, all things that are easily Googleable, uh, but 54 of them, whether it was a word, a phrase, a sentence, there's two full paragraphs they took out here at one point, even though anyone can go on to YouTube and see a Department of Defense video showing what I describe in here, but that's beside the point. Uh, so I thought, okay, 54 redactions, but now I have some attorneys at this point. So now uh, I, I pay attorneys to go back to the Department of Defense and appeal. You have a certain amount of days you can repeal. I think it's like uh, a month, maybe it's two months, whatever it is. But you have a certain amount of time to go back and appeal this decision. So we say we're going to go ahead and publish this with the redactions in there, just like with the terminal list. So those 54 redactions all blacked out. Meanwhile, my attorneys are putting together uh, a document that ties every one of those redactions to a publicly available government document. Not something that's just on the internet or in someone else's book or anything else. No, things that anyone anywhere in the world can get from our very own government. So they tied every single one of those, all 54, back to publicly available documents. So resubmitted that during this appeal timeframe that they give you and uh, ended up winning on 30, let's say 36, 37, 38, 39, somewhere in there. I won uh, on all those. They kept some, even though they were all tied back to those publicly available documents. Um, they only let me win on 39 or whatever it was. Fine. So uh, for the paperback, so right here, paperback, what uh, I went ahead and did is unredact those in here. So people can take this hardcover that still has the redactions and they can compare it to this paperback right here or this trade paperback right here and they can see what was the government so worried about why were they concerned about this certain location in uh in north africa why was that taken out in here and and not in here uh so that, that was pretty that was pretty fun to do and it was uh it was fun to talk about and then people can uh it gives people a reason to kind of go a little deeper into into things and anyway that's that that's how we started off uh yeah, and while that delay the, was going on i don't think i ever told you that this but i i actually wrote my congressperson oh nice thank you i did not know I, that i explained the situation and i said is there anything you can do? And uh, as you can imagine, that was a uh, waste of time. I never got a response. <laughs> and it's, it's not the first time this congressperson did not respond to something that I asked them about. Uh, so it wasn't a surprise. But, uh -huh. uh, I was trying everything. That's like when the kid in, let's say, uh, Los Angeles or New York gets his bike stolen and, you know, goes to the police department and just like asking about how, how the investigation is going into the stolen bicycle. And they're like, yeah, yeah. After we solve all the murders, kid, you know, uh, so it's kind, of, it's kind of one of those things. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, we had to push that publication date. So pushed it to, uh, to late July and then, uh, did a, did a great book tour, went down to the UDT seal museum down in Florida as part of that book tour, which was fantastic. Um, of, uh, Vero beach book center 
centered and it was great, a great tour, but it was late, you know, it was, it was, it was late and that's how, that's just how it goes. But that's how, uh, how things started off for true believer. And the other thing a little different about true believer was the way I started it. And that was very intentional, um, because I didn't want to be looked at as just somebody like a one trick pony. And, you know, once you have a success, whatever, for whatever reason in this, in this country, uh, we like, we like the, uh, we like people who succeed, but we also like to see them fall, uh, for whatever reason. Uh, we like the Rocky story, the comeback story too. Maybe that's cause it's a cycle. So we like those things. I don't know why in this country, but I didn't want to be looked at as kind of the one trick pony. And I wanted to do something different. I've been a student of this genre my entire life, coming from the fan perspective, uh, reading all the books by Tom Clancy and Nelson DeMille and uh, H.U. Quinnell and J.C. Pollock and Mark Olden, David Morrell, all these guys who were the masters of storytelling back in the thriller genre in the 80s when I grew up and in the 90s. I've never stopped reading those books and I've gone back and I've read all those books that uh, that moved the genre forward, whether it was the novella, The Most Dangerous Game, or it was Rogue Mail in 1939, or David Morrell's First Blood in 1972, or Last of the Breed in the mid 80s by Louis L'Amour. Um, so I know the history of the genre just from the fans perspective. And uh, so I wanted to do something a little different. And I always knew I was going to write two books. So I wrote this one before I even sent the first book to Simon and Schuster. Uh, I had no, didn't know any agents, didn't know anyone in Hollywood, didn't know anybody in publishing. Uh, but I always knew I was going to write two because of the John Grisham story, how he wrote a time to kill first. And then he couldn't really give that book away. And then he writes The Firm and that one takes off and Tom Cruise is in the movie and then they republish A Time to Kill and Matthew McConaughey stars in that one. And we've had a John Grisham novel every year since. So I always knew because of that story that I was going to write too, uh, thinking that what if John Grisham had stopped after that first one and uh, then we wouldn't have a John Grisham novel every year. Uh, and I think A Time to Kill is one of his best works, um, but it's the one that didn't, didn't propel him and The Firm did. So... That's what was in my head as I'm writing this one right here. And I started a little different because once you have something that's a, a success, and I think it was also helpful that I started writing this before I sent the first book to Simon and Schuster because it wasn't, oh, like, okay, we have one. People liked it. Okay. Uh, do that same thing again, but just drop it in Africa, drop it in Europe, drop it in Australia, drop it in China, wherever. Uh, but similar type of a thing. Can you do that? Um, so there, that wasn't even a part of the calculus. It was all about the story and it remains all about the story to this day. Uh, so he goes on a journey in the beginning of this. And that yellow sticky this time said violent redemption, a journey of violent redemption. So that's the theme of true believer. But I thought it would be disingenuous to the reader, to the listener nowadays to just pick him up and drop James Reese, my protagonist into a, a new scenario somewhere. He had to go on a journey. He needed to learn to live again. He needed to find his next mission in life, his purpose in life. And he still thinks he's dying at this point. So he's on the Atlantic and I had to call and email and text a bunch of different people who uh, are sailors, either race, like Jimmy Spithill, who races, and then uh, another guy who Jimmy introduced me to, who is a one of these long distance Volvo around the world sailors, um, so I could get this right. And I, I started it off with, okay, this is this guy's background. So he's a Navy SEAL. He, uh, he sailed as a kind of a kid growing up. He took a couple of courses in the, in the military so he could get a diff, couple of different licenses so he could handle a couple of different things. But he's not a sailor. He's not an expert at this sort of a thing. He needs to go from here to here at this time of year. Here's what's on the boat. Uh, how would he do it? And uh, so I got feedback from real people that knew what they were doing that I could incorporate into this because I wanted a sailor to look at this and say, oh, okay. Oh, that's about the time it would take. So I said, you know, how would he get from here to here? But keep in mind his background. So it's not going to be, 
a straight line, it's going to be the monkey stumbling essentially to get there uh, on this sailboat. So he's not going to be the most direct route because of his background. So when I sent this to Simon and Schuster and it got to Emily's desk, I, I half thought she might cut out the first third of the novel. She might. And I think a lot of editors may have cut out the first third of this book, um, but she didn't. And, and I love that she didn't. And I love that it's different than a lot of books in the genre, different than most uh, authors and their publisher and editor would do because it's risky. It's risky oh, to start when, this thing when off. I read it, Jack, and I remember calling you right after I read it, and I told you that was the riskiest thing I've ever seen a writer do in their second book because it is so, it's almost like a whole different style you're taking on in the beginning. And it was, it was actually the first time I emailed the producer at CBS News and to give you some, you know, you didn't do CBS until last summer. So yeah. that's how long it takes sometimes to get something booked. But yeah. it was after reading that. And I said, you know what? This guy is different. He writes literature. This is oh, literature. Thank you. Thanks. Like it's literature. I mean, what you did and, and what's interesting is that I and I don't know whether you did this on purpose or whether you knew you did. I'm sure you know you did that. But the beginning of the book that comes out uh, that, that that we're leading up to right now. Right now. Well, yeah, I was going to bring this up. Yes. So, yes, I it did. It opens up in a very <laughs> similar. It doesn't go it on does. as long as it does because it, mm -hmm. because what happens in Only the Dead doesn't take as long as what he was trying yeah. to do in True Believer. But it opens up where where Reese is alone in his thoughts. And I just had this text conversation with a radio host who you do a lot of uh, interviews with and who will be seeing on tour. Wonderful. And he told me, and I agreed. I said, Jack does some of his best writing when it's Reese all alone in his own head. And true believer opened up that way. Mm -hmm. Only the dead opens up that way. Yeah. And it is not something that you see often in this genre. It is that something I don't think I ever saw at the point of time that I read True Believer, which is why I said, wow, that was risky. And wow, thank God Emily let that let it stay uh, because uh, it sets you apart and puts you on a whole different level. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That means so much to me. And uh, and I did think about that in Only the Dead here as I started. And I also thought about uh, David Morrell, his influence on me from a very young age. Of course, he created Rambo uh, with uh, his debut novel, First Blood, back in 1972. But if those, have, if those who have read uh, his two novelizations, Rambo First Blood Part Two and Rambo Three, um, and I talk about it in the author's note to Only the Dead right here. So that opening is, uh, is, is a tribute really to fans of David Morrell it's a it's a tribute uh, from me to him um, because of his influence and because how how he opens and closes those novels as well. So um, so there's 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 a lot to it. But I did think about that uh, about True Believer as I was starting this right here. And I love being in James Reese's head in those kind of situations, particularly in this one. But they are very similar, similar, not the exact location, obviously, but being in his head. And I uh, I do love that. So that, and that, those are fun for me to write. Really fun to write. Uh, but the first the first scene you open the book which leads me to this question is true believer a christmas book <laughs> that's like the diehard question uh, you know i didn't think of it that way as i was writing it but 
as I crept, as we crept up on Christmas 2019, um, I certainly did. I certainly did. I thought, man, what if this could be a Christmas book? Um, and uh, so it does have that. Uh, and I think we did around Christmas. I think uh, I think we did do a couple things about it being a Christmas book. Maybe I made a couple posts or said a couple things about it being a Christmas book because of how it starts here with this terrorist attack in London at a uh, at a Christmas fair. Um, so yeah, that was. Uh, <laughs> yes, it's a Christmas book. It should be read every holiday season. Uh, by every family across the world. All right, let's talk about Spartan Forge. You can find them at S-P-A-R-T-A-N-F-O-R-G-E dot A-I. Go check them out. They have an amazing app. Spartan Forge is an all-encompassing hunting and planning application powered by artificial intelligence. Developed by a U.S. Army warrant officer conducting intelligence preparation of the battlefield in the special missions arena for our nation's most elite operators. The app offers military-based targeting for hunters. The technology uses artificial intelligence-powered movement prediction. It features movement prediction paired with current and historical wind data, current forecasts, and state data. They partnered with Premier Universities to collect data on deer movement. It is as accurate and testable as scientifically possible. No snake oil, no bullshit. Its UAV map features next-level imagery detail, the highest resolution offered on the market, with up to seven years of historical imagery. Its Blue Force tracker allows users to share pins and location data to a set group of peers in a user-defined area. The LiDAR map lets hunters look through the trees and structures to see topography like never before, giving the user a detailed viewpoint of trails, beds, and more. And the Lambda map is fully customizable, set to parameters selected by the user for fast access. It will also indicate public and private land boundaries. The journal feature lets users keep track of every detail of their hunt, write historical descriptions, and add photos and waypoints, all while pulling historical weather pattern data. And its desktop app features Eastman's Tag Hub. Spartan Forge works hand-in-hand with Eastman's to integrate Tag Hub app into Spartan Forge, providing Western hunting draw odds and stats. Users can search by location, species, season, and trophy potential to best plan their Western hunt. Get 30% off if you sign up with the code DANGERCLOSE at www.eastman.com. SpartanForge.ai, that is S P A R T A N F O R G E dot A I. That is the highest discount they have ever offered, and it is perfect to get started on that summer scouting. Check them out, SpartanForge.ai. So uh, he's on the boat. Where is he going? Yep. So he's learning to live again and he needs to make it to a place. He doesn't think he's going to get there. He thinks he's going to die along the way. And, uh, but he's never, he's not wanting to give up. So he's just going to sail until he dies, but he's not just going to sail until he hits something. He's going to sail with a destination just in case, because maybe he does make it to shore and he dies once he's ashore. Maybe he gets ashore. He's there for a week or a month. Um, and he needs to go someplace where he is off the grid. So he has been to, uh, he was in Mozambique in college with his friend, Rafe Hastings, also a seal who's introduced at the end of the terminal list. Who's a fan favorite character now, um, which was really 
the intent of, of that character from the very beginning. I love Rafe Hastings and his whole family and his whole lineage. But uh, they went back there to work on Rafe Hastings' uncle's uh, hunting in session back there. So uh, learning how to track, helping out in the skinning shed, uh, helping clients, uh, learning from the professional hunters, really just uh, unpaid uh, labor essentially, but, uh, learning how to work, learning the value of hard work, learning the land, um, learning how to, uh, how to, how do you care for, uh, for these animals once they go down in the field? Um, and it, in imparting life lessons from Rich Hastings, Rafe's uncle. So he said, figures, okay, I'm in the Atlantic. Uh, there's nowhere else really for me to go. Uh, I'm going to Mozambique. So he essentially sails across the Atlantic uh, hits some islands uh, off the coast of Africa, takes a right, heads south, and works his way down and then back up the other side of the continent and then sinks the boat. And I had to figure out how you would sink a boat like that. So I had to talk to a few people about what one would need to do if you wanted to send that thing to the bottom. And uh, so he essentially burns the boats, burns the ships, and uh, sends his boat to the bottom that had treated him so well over the preceding months, kept him alive. And uh, and he goes ashore over the beach, as we say in the SEAL teams. So got a little over the beach action in there. It's, uh, it's tied to his legacy and his father's legacy as a frogman, so swims up over the beach, uh, caches some of his items, and then makes his way towards Pemba, where he knows there is a charter flight service that can take him into the bush and take him to that hunting concession. So uh, that's, uh, that's, his, that's that first part of the book that I thought Emily might take out. So glad that, uh, that she didn't. And uh, that really kicks off his journey. He lands. Uh, Rafe Hastings, or Rafe's uncle, Rich, is uh, is a cool figure in and of his uh, on his own. And people ask me all the time if I'm going to write a book about him. Um, and then you get to know Africa a little bit. But as I was doing this, as I was writing this, uh, I was in Africa. So even though I didn't have a book deal yet, I'm just out of the military. But I already thought of myself as an author. And I got that from Stephen Pressfield um, from his book, Turning Pro, or he maybe said it in interviews somewhere, but it really ties to his book, Turning Pro, which is one of a series that he writes on creativity. Uh, and he said in one of those interviews or in that book, he says that you're a professional, sit down and write, turn pro. And uh, so on the customs form into, into Africa, into because you go to South Africa first, and then you fly up to, to Mozambique from there, but it asks your occupation. And I wrote author, even though didn't have anything published, didn't have an agent, didn't have anything. Um, and uh, get up to Mozambique because I'm doing research because I know that's going to be such an important part of the story. And uh, I need to go and I need to see what is the dirt like? What color is it? What are the rocks like? Uh, what, are, what, what are these professional hunters? Who are their backgrounds? What, are, what can I learn from these trackers? What can I ask them about Chinese mining operations, both illegal and legal in the area, the politics of the area, the history of the area? And I knew it was going to be so important. So I got to spend a couple of weeks on the ground over there um, and weave all that into the novel to really bring that part to life. So uh, that's where he learns to live again. And he gets to take some of his, his skills as a special operator and apply them to the poaching problem in Mozambique. So he gets to take something uh, that, was, um, that was solely focused on killing and destroying an enemy and take those skills and apply them to preserving some of the, uh, uh, some of the last animals uh, on earth in some of, these, of some of these different species in Mozambique. So he got to turn his, those skills and use them for good. And of course, this is him learning to live again, finding this next purpose in life. And a lot of people in the military have a hard time, especially in special operations, leaving that former life behind. Uh, when I was the operations officer at BUDS, our SEAL training center, I saw so many people who got out of the military, got out of 
the SEAL teams, but couldn't really leave it behind, couldn't build on that foundation. And uh, it's one of the reasons we made a physical and psychological break with the military and moved up to uh, Park City, Utah here from Coronado, California. Um, but James Reese needed to do something similar. He needed to learn to live again. He needed to find that next mission in life, that purpose in life, and he finds it in Mozambique. And of course, that's when uh, the CIA tracks him down. That's and, what I was going to uh, say. That's where the, he, the found, he, he found himself in Mozambique and, and someone else found him in Mozambique too. Yeah, but there's only one person who could have found him uh, there and that's Freddie Strain. Freddie Strain. And I got to say, this book introduces us to a lot of, uh, I'm going to say, because I'm a fan, fan favorite characters that, are, that have multi-book uh, arcs. And Freddie Strain is one of them. Well, Freddie Strain, I mean, he's, he's definitely, he, he goes on in Reese's head and he's in every book from here. Uh, I guess we're going to talk about it. Spoiler alerts here. Uh, so anybody listening to this uh, who's worried about spoilers should, uh, should turn this off and pick up the book or get the audiobook read by the amazing Ray Porter right now. But uh, yeah, only one person really could attract Reese down here. I mean, Rafe could have, obviously, but he's not talking. Um, but someone within the establishment, uh, only one person could track him down. And this person, Rafe Hastings, has two reasons to, to track him down. Um, you know, one, it's his job. And uh, Freddie Strain, yep. And two, yeah, sorry, Freddie has to have Rafe, because Rafe could find him, of course. Rafe knows where he's going. Uh, and But Freddie is part of the establishment. He's uh, he's in the SEAL teams. Now he's moved over to the CIA. And uh, and he finds out that there is a, uh, an incident happens in Africa where a uh, uh, a tracker is, is shot by a poacher. James Reese saves the day, of course, saves the, uh, saves the tracker, but gets to a little medical facility uh, where there happens to be a doctor, a medical professional there. And uh, now this is the first time that James Reese has essentially come up for air. Uh, he's now back on the grid because other people are now have now seen him in this medical facility. And this doctor is a uh, Western doctor and asks him, uh, you know, his name. And he gives a name that is, uh, is tied to Naval special warfare history. Cause he's just thinking on his feet real quick. And, uh, and so that little bit of information makes its way back to British intelligence over to the CIA. And they couple that with, wait a second, there's something going on over here in Mozambique. There's a huge drop in the, uh, in the, like the anti-poaching efforts have, are doing extremely well on this one concession. And so Freddie Strain puts the pieces of the puzzle together and shows up to offer James Reese a deal. I think that's probably a good place maybe to kick it over to producer Jesse, should we do that? Or David, do you have a question about this? Oh, I love, I love that. And I, I saw Jesse opening and closing up his mic. So I think he's itching to go. Yes, oh, let's man. do it. Let's let uh, producer Jesse come on in and give us a little synopsis of yeah. True Believer from someone who just read it for the purpose of doing exactly that. Because I am incapable of giving <laughs> a three to five minute synopsis. My synopsis will last for 45 minutes to an hour. So Jesse. What do, what do you got right, here for I'll, True Believer? I'll be, I'll be sitting here listening, watching, judging. Grading. Grading mm -hmm. the book. Oh, that'd be a grade. There. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, as you said, like the, the first act of this uh, book in, opens up really with a dual narrative. Um, uh, we, we find James Reese. He is initially at sea on the um, uh, Bitter Harvest yacht that he had, uh, 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 you know, was able to secure at the end of the first book. And he's sort of on this Odyssean journey. Is that an yeah. adjective? Uh, Could be, uh, yeah. Uh, 
like the Odyssey. Uh -huh. He is uh -huh. trying to rediscover himself on this at this low mo moment in a hero's journey. As you mentioned, Jack, he is at sea for a while. He reflects on his friendship with Rafe Hastings, who he met in college and became a blood brother with because mm -hmm. they would frequently go on these hunting expeditions in the wilds of Montana, come back soaked in blood, go to class. They were very close. So when he decides that he needs a, a place to go to die, because as, as readers for the first book will remember, he believes he has a ter terminal brain tumor at this point. He goes to uh, this uh, um, uh, kind of hunting ranch in Mozambique that uh, is owned by the Hastings family uh, and becomes very close with his uncle Rich Hastings, where Jack, as you said, he starts volunteering, he starts running poachers off the land, but really is able to rediscover himself. Meanwhile, in sort of a parallel narrative, we're introduced to Vasily Andrinov, and he is a well-connected Russian nationalist uh, who is orchestrating a series of really horrific terrorist attacks, um, but we're, we learn that he's doing it through what appear to be radical Muslim proxies. Um, you know, some, especially ones connected to Syria. Uh, the, as you mentioned, it opens up with this horrific uh, Christmas Day bombing. There is uh, assassinations of high-profile uh, 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 military generals. There's also a, a British platoon coming back from a deployment in Afghanistan. His victims of these sniper attacks. We meet a, a really ruthless Syrian sniper who's kind of a hired gun named Nazar. So all of this is happening sort of in parallel. And it's it's uh, Reese doesn't even know what's going on because he's off the grid. But as you said, uh, through a series of events, his his cover is sort of blown. And Freddie Strain, who we actually meet in the first Terminal List book, who was one of the kind of hired guns that when Reese was on the run for committing all these high profile acts of vengeance, uh, uh, was temporarily hunting Reese. But they turn out to be old sniper buddies. And Freddie comes and offers him a deal. He says that uh, he can get a presidential pardon and he'll also secure pardons for Liz and everyone who helped him out in the first book uh, if he'll go and join the CIA to try to help solve these uh, who's behind these horrible acts of terrorism. Now, the connection to, to Reese and these acts of terrorism fall within an, an Iraqi special operations commander who he used to work with, who he, know, who he knows as Mo. And he, they believe that Mo might know something about the terrorists who are conducting these horrible acts of terrorism. Now, the one other kind of backstory that's really important to know is Vasily Andronov, the, the, the Russian nationalist mastermind of all these terrorist attacks, had in the 80s recruited a kind of lonely um, uh, CIA agent named Oliver Gray, who becomes a major character in the series. Now, he's the uh, lonely, uh, he's the son of Russian immigrants, and uh, uh, Andronov is able to use sort of this fatherly void in Oliver Gray's life to recruit him as a Russian asset. Uh, together, they come up with a plot. And the plot is, and, and again, this is the, the spoiler that we're, we're going to fast forward to the third act. Um, the plot is they're going to try to eliminate uh, uh, Reese. They actually attack him and Freddie as they're training in a, in a black site compound that's redacted the location. Of the well, book. it's redacted um, in the uh, hardcover, not in the paperback. Okay, so so in the hardcover, it's the, the location <laughs> is redacted. Uh, but what Andrianoff and Gray are plotting is they're going to uh, they're planning on uh, assassinating the Russian president and the U.S. president, who is going to uh, they're going to have a big uh, meeting in Ukraine, and they're going to announce there that uh, Russia is going to give back Crimea to Ukraine in exchange for the 
U.S. releasing these sanctions and kind of bring uh, 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 Russia further west. Um, but the, what Oliver and Andrianov have decided to do is use this as an opportunity to kill both the American president, the Russian president, and to release a, a chemical weapon underneath the catacombs of Odessa, Ukraine, which will kill hundreds of thousands of people. They will pin the blame on Russian, uh, or I'm sorry, on Islamic terrorists, and they will, they will use the vacuum of power for Andrianov to rise to the Russian presidency and to use it as, an, as a, a uh, kind of a legal way to uh, uh, go to war with uh, uh, Islamic nations, kind of expand Russia, bring them further east, put them against the West. Now, Reese and Freddie and, and a team are able to uncover this plot, but in the process of trying to stop the chemical attack, Freddie is actually killed by the sniper Nazar. Now, Reese is able to kill Andrianov, but Oliver Gray and Nazar remain at large at the end of the novel, kind of setting up characters for future novels. And that's sort of uh, uh, how the, 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 the story ends. Reese is also uh, informed by Freddie that as an act of service, he not only gets pardons and gets a new life for him and his friends, but he'll also be able to have the tumor removed surgically. And that's, uh, that's true believer in, in a quick, quick recap. That's pretty dang how do, good. How do I do? That's pretty do dang do? good. I'm going to go a B plus plus because it was uh, very complicated. And yeah. that was by design. The book is complicated. I mean, so, um, so I'm giving you, you points for distilling it, something that was pretty complex uh, down in, uh, in a short amount of time. So well done there. Um, and one thing that Freddie wanted to do also was that he wanted to ask Reese why Reese didn't kill him in this ambush that he would they were clearly in uh in the first novel so in the first novel this is where james reese and i thought a couple readers were going to figure out that ben edwards is uh is a bad guy and uh, i actually had to drop one more hint in because emily bessler my publisher and editor at simon and schuster because um, when you're writing these things you think because uh, you were so intimately involved with the story you know what's happening but for a first time reader uh they don't but still being intimately involved with it, I thought, oh, they, I, I, can't, I can't put that in here. It's gonna totally give it away. And, and it didn't. I think maybe one or two people may have figured it out. Um, ben Edwards being a bad guy, I mean. But in that one scene, that's why Reese is going to Ben Edwards' cabin. And But instead of going into the cabin, he sets up in a sniper position. And a group from Naval Special Warfare is hunting him down uh, on U.S. soil at the behest of uh, uh, the Secretary of Defense, Lorraine Hartley. And they're in this ambush that Reese has set up. And he has them dead to rights and this is where the reader uh, doesn't know if reese is going to kill his own brothers as part of this he's shown up to this point it is all revenge without constraint and he's up there and he has them dead to rights he's lured them into this ambush he now knows also that ben is bad and he sees somebody down there and that person is freddie strain and he doesn't clock off this ambush so there's that part too and then freddie of course they go up they find that they were in this ambush like that reese could have killed them all and that all and freddie would wanted to know why he didn't so yes he's doing it because the government has ordered him to track down his former friend or his friend james reese but he also wants to ask him that question he wants to ask him that why so there was a couple reasons that he uh that he tracked down his his former sniper buddy and uh and this was a, this was also by design to make this novel um 
comp uh, complex, not complicated. And I didn't think of it in those terms back then. That is a more recent thing that I've learned from David DeGilio, who's the showrunner on the terminal list. Um, but, uh, but that's really what this is. And I wanted it to not just be the first novel, hard hitting, bam, out of the gate. It's visceral, it's primal, it's violent, it's hard hitting. And this one, I wanted to do something different and hence that whole beginning and the more complex storyline with those geopolitical aspects to it. Um, so I wanted this book to differentiate itself from the first one. I wanted people to have no problem uh, remembering which book was True Believer and which one was The Terminalist. Not like, oh, which one was the first one? I get those kind of confused sometimes. No, I wanted them to be uh, so different um, and I wanted to uh, move the story forward, move that story arc along. Cause you have to have a story arc for each individual book. And then you have to have a story arc because it's a recurring character that continues over all the books. Um, so this one, it was very much by design to, uh, go into the geopolitical aspects of Russia and Ukraine and Syria and tie this all together with Reese's past and Mo and having him go up into Europe. Uh, and I'll forget the question a lot is Mo a real person. And that's classified as well. So, oh, come on. Everything's yeah. classified yeah. with you. You know, there's a couple. <laughs> Got to keep a couple things close hold. Um, but uh, so, so this one ended up being a much more complex storyline uh, when you're thinking it through in outline form and then uh, have a lot of problems to solve uh, creatively and aggressively on the page as you um, take that one page executive summary, take that uh, outline and then turn it into the narrative. But a lot of people are introduced in uh, in this book, a lot of characters introduced in this book that are going to go on into the future. Yeah, we've got Vic Rodriguez who continues on into the, the latest novel right here. Um, Oliver Gray, who is not a fan favorite. It's not easy to like him. Oh no. I, he, yeah. And that's going to be an interesting one to cast. Like we're talking about it already. And I never say who I have in mind, um, for different characters, uh, because if it doesn't end up being that person, I don't want them to you know feel bad. Um, but, uh, as we're thinking through casting for the, uh, the, the second season of the terminal list for true believer, uh, which we do after the spinoff series with, uh, with Ben Edwards starring Taylor kitsch. Um, <laughs> oh, it's a fun, it's a fun casting, um, uh, situation to figure out. Well, here's the question about Oliver Gray. And yes. this, this, like in high school, we used to do uh, units on Shakespeare, and the, the teacher would always talk about the symbolism and what Shakespeare meant when he said. And I didn't believe. I, I always thought that was like retrofit. Like yeah, yeah. He just wrote it, and sure. we're we're putting words. Gray seems like the perfect name for him. I see him and his life in just gray. Yep. No, that is very much by design as well. Um, and, uh, and there's another meaning to it also that I will tell you later. There's a, there's something that's, uh, that's, uh, in all the novels that, uh, has a touch point with, uh, personal backstory, I guess. Um, and, and that's, uh, this is one of them, but, uh, but yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of thought that goes into the names. Um, and sometimes, and like this, uh, with the Russian ones, it gets kind of difficult because they all sound so similar. Um, and it's very difficult to find these Russian last names and first names that are different enough. So I have a little graph there as I'm creating Russian characters, uh, particularly for this one right here for the latest one, only the dead. Cause you have to make sure that they don't sound so similar that people get confused because of that similarity in how they end or how they start, uh, that sort of a thing. So, um, but, uh, so, so oftentimes that's the case, particularly for me with the Russian type names. Um, but, uh, but other times 
I guess this is kind of juxtapose it to the names, last names that get a lot of thought. Sometimes you're like trying to think and you're trying to put so much thought, or I am anyway, trying to put a lot of thought into a character's name. And then I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to put this, this is going to be a placeholder. Uh, Anne is a placeholder or whatever it is. Um, and then you start writing and then you get to know that character as Anne. And that just becomes the name when it was supposed to be a placeholder. So the names are really, really interesting. And I have a lot of, uh, a lot of fun and put a lot of thought into those. Very little Katie in this book. I don't even know if she is only, she's only referred to, right? She doesn't even appear. She appears, uh, but they don't have any interaction. So James Reese is in his hotel room, eventually comes back to the United States, uh, meets Andy Danreb, who is in this book and comes back in, in this one. And he's in Savage Son as well. Um, but he's the uh, agency's foremost Russian expert, a little gruff, but uh, they go to CIA headquarters and uh, pick his brain about it. Uh, and he gives them some information that uh, Reese is going to need later down the line. Um, but is in his hotel room. He turns on the news and there's Katie uh, on the news and it's live. So he's like, he knows where he's right down the street from where she's filming. Uh, so he goes there and he goes to meet her and waits outside and she comes out. And of course that's when the phone rings and off he has to go. So she never sees him, but uh, he, and he tries to, and I wanted to make it more like a, almost like a high school, like you're nervous to call or nervous to, uh, cause I don't want, we didn't want James Reese to be good at everything. Uh, in the first book, he's not very good at some of the surveillance stuff. He's more, he's more the kick in the door guy, uh, get up in the sniper hide type stuff. Like he's, that's him. Uh, he's not really some of the surveillance stuff and the patience of doing that and cameras and all that. He's not the greatest at, so he's not the greatest at everything. And then I didn't want him to be so super suave that he's, you know, uh, unbelievable James Bond type of a character. And I love James Bond. That is no hit there. I just wanted him to, I wanted to humanize him a little bit, which is why he puts, uh, honey and cream in his coffee. Like I do. He, uh, and then he's a little bit, uh, awkward, uh, with Katie for a few different, different reasons. But some of that is that he has these feelings for her and he's just like a, a guy who's a little, little nervous and doesn't know, you know, what, what really to do and what, how she feels about him. And he's kind of starting to maybe get that, give that call or say hello. And then whew, it's almost like the bat phone rings. Oh, phew, whew, good one. Don't have to do that this time. And also, I hadn't figured out how he's going to come back from this yet, how he's going to come back from what he said in that first novel when uh, she says, how did you know that the, the debt cord wasn't hooked up? How did you know Ben wasn't going to blow my head off? I hadn't quite figured out how he was going to deal with that yet. And I figured it out for Savage Son. But uh, anyway, uh, so Katie is not in this, uh, in this one very much. But he's in his thoughts. He's thinking about her. Right. And of course, we already talked about there's a lot of thinking in this book. Uh, before we move on to the Savage Sun episode, the showcase torture du jour from True Believer. <laughs> yes, that one is I uh, get a lot of lot of people from the first novel. They talk about the uh, disemboweling scene and making um, that character walk around the tree and have his guts wrapped around it. People talk about that one a lot. Uh, this one, people talk about this piano wire around the private parts um, and essentially a noose um, that uh, he's on a wobbly chair naked. And I really, when I, when I did the outline, this is my, my, my problem. I wanted James Reese to be doing that interrogation. And I got to that point and it just didn't, it didn't fit. It felt forced to try to get James Reese into a situation where he gets um, gets this character on a chair with a piano wire around his <laughs> around his private parts attached to the roof. So if he falls, it's gonna gonna cut him right off. Uh, I'm gonna slice right through him. Uh, 
So it just made sense for Mo to do it. And then when I thought about it, I was like, yep, absolutely. Because this person also tricked Mo and uh, made Mo believe that he was working for the CIA when in fact he was not. He was working for Jules Landry, who has been turned, who's in turn working for this, uh, this, this Russian who wants to get back into power in Russia. Um, so, uh, so it just made, it, sometimes things happen like that in novels. They're outlined a certain way, and then I get to that stage, and it just doesn't quit, fit quite right. And very naturally, this one made sense to have Mo do this particular torture. So yeah, this one's in here and this one is one that people talk to me about a lot, particularly the guys, the guys don't hear about it too much from, uh, from the, uh, the female readers, but the guys tell me that they just, oh, they just wince when they, uh, when they read this or they think about this particular torture scene. When I think about it, my, and I talk about it, my voice gets very high. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty brutal. It's pretty brutal. Um, and it's like, it's at this point where I was like, oh, I guess every book is going to need some sort of a signature torture. I'm going to have to think this through now. People are expecting it. People like it. Uh, and, oh, that means I'm going to need to get very creative in the books going forward. Because these ones have been pretty good up to this point. Uh, and, uh, and Savage Sun, I think, yeah, Savage Sun... We'll talk about that in a minute, but uh, the torture scene in there. Actually, there's two. Um, the, they're they're pretty dang good. Yeah, they're we're going to talk good. about that in the episode coming up, and I'm also going to ask you whether you've uh, put these into action before because <laughs> some of them are way too creative for you to have just thought about on the fly. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. And uh, and True Believer, how do we wrap up True Believer here? Because um, this is the – I also need to figure out a way – part of the art of this is – to get to the end of a chapter and figure out a way to leave that chapter in that the person reading wants to read the next chapter and uh, wants to keep going and wants to stay up all night reading this book and then wants to the next morning get up and tell a friend about it at work or tell a coworker or a family member or put it online or whatever it is, leave a review on Amazon, that sort of a thing. Um, so I got to the end of this one and I needed to figure out how to have enough resolution here but also have a little bit out there where there's a lead in a new direction for James Reese and that uh, the reader kind of knows what's good, where James Reese is going to go next and want to know more about it. And so uh, this one right here ends, ends that way. And, uh, and that doesn't, you know, that does not always mean a cliffhanger though. No. It could. Right, but that exactly. does not always mean a cliffhanger. Exactly, no, just a hint, just a just a hint. This one's just a hint at the end. Um, it gets a little information there at the end that's going to lead him into this next chapter of his life. Um, and also, he's learning, he's growing, he's on a journey. He's taking these lessons from past experiences and applying them going forward as wisdom. And he now has to make decisions about uh, about his future in this one. And then as we go move along, maybe not just his future, maybe his future with Katie. So there's, he's always evolving just like we all are in life. We're all on this journey. We all share that in common and we all have limited time on this earth, which is why I put so much uh, time, energy, and effort into these, why all my heart and soul goes into every single sentence in these novels, because people are trusting me with that time that they're never going to get back. And that's something I take extremely seriously. So, um, so I loved how true believer ended. I, I was, I was ready to go with savage son right away. That's right. So let's let's do it. So with that in mind, uh, let's move on and to our next the next journey in in, in this series. Let's do it. Savage Sun. Savage Sun coming up.